This week on the Holy Bold Podcast, we have our first Articles of the Faith segment where we'll be looking at a good article about the Christian faith. Uh, We will also discuss the ramifications of the Great Reformation Doctrine Sola Gratia, or Grace Alone, and we will roast the heretical theology of a 5th century British monk. So, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is TJ Lucasen, and this is the Holy Bold Podcast. Well, hello, hello, hello. Thank you for joining. So glad that you have tuned in. As I mentioned in the introduction, this will be the first uh, of a new recurring segment that we will have, which is called the Articles of the Faith. So obviously, if you're familiar with that phrase, it is a, a phrase that refers to, you know, the doctrines that we believe, they are the articles of the faith. Well, I am reappropriating that term, and it is this whole recurring segment is about articles that are good that are about the Christian faith. And so uh, this is the first in that uh, uh, in that vein, and I'm sure that there will be more down the line. Uh, and so this week we'll be looking for our first article of the faith. We'll be looking at an article by the late, great R.C. Sproul. Um, The very first episode of this podcast opened with a clip from R.C. Sproul, a sermon that he preached. I was speaking about the uh, holiness of God, and Sproul is one of the the most most enthusiastic champions uh, regarding the holiness of God. I think he... He has a great under or had he has since passed away, but he had a great understanding of of God's majesty, his righteousness, his uh, transcendence. And and I think Sproul wrote and spoke in such a way that he he brought many people to a deeper understanding of uh, God's immense holiness. Uh, And so the article that we're going to look at today, it's actually not. So much, uh, of course, every every Christian doctrine relates back in some way to the holiness of God. But this one is not, you know, intimately, directly connected, I guess you might say. Uh, but it is a very important doctrine that we're going to be looking at. Uh, he writes an article and, and Sproul's article was called uh, or is called the Pelagian Captivity of the church. So thank you for tuning in to our new segment, the articles of the faith. So, uh, that there may have been a new word to you in the, in the title of that article and the, the link, if you want to read the whole article, I would highly encourage you to do it. I will not, you know, be reading every sentence from the whole article. I'll be kind of highlighting bits that I think are especially important uh, and especially useful for us today. Uh, But the link to the article will be in the episode description. So if you go down there, look at the show notes, you will see a link to read the entire article. But just in the title, the Pelagian captivity of the church you, you may have already run into a word that you may not be 
intimately familiar with, and that is Pelagianism. And so that's where we'll begin is discussing just sort of what is Pelagianism. And then from there, we'll talk a little bit about the article itself. But I'm going to draw heavily on the article, even in just trying to define for you uh, what Pelagianism is. But before we jump too deeply into uh, discussing Pelagianism itself, I want to give you my thesis that I hope I will uh, substantiate for you as we continue on through the rest of this episode. So my thesis for this episode is there is more Pelagianism in America than genuine Christianity. Now, uh, again, if you're not super familiar with Pelagianism, that that thesis does not mean a lot to you, but it will come to mean a great deal to you as you listen through this episode. And I, I would hazard a guess that you will, uh, once you hear the definition of Pelagianism, you'll probably uh, agree with me. So, but that is the thesis. I think that there are more people in America who would call themselves Christians that actually believe some form of Pelagianism than Christianity. And and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, who was Pelagius, what did Pelagius believe, uh, and why is that unbiblical? And then uh, I will kind of make my case towards the end that, that there is a great deal of Pelagianism uh, within our own society. Uh, and even in the American church. But let's begin uh, with just this question of of who is Pelagius. And so I'm going to pull up the article on my screen here. So hopefully uh, if you're watching the video, you can see it. If not, if you're just listening, you can track along, you know, uh, by pulling up the article from the show notes or just just listen. I will read the the majority of of, of everything that I will be referring to. So I'm going to pull on the article heavily as we go through. Um, so uh, let's jump in. We're going to first discuss just this question of who is Pelagius. So I'm going to give you a quote uh, from the article. It's on page three. So sorry, I need to scroll down a little bit. Uh, Pelagius, here's a, a begin quote. Pelagius was a monk who lived in Britain in the fifth century. He was a contemporary of the greatest theologian of the first millennium of church history, if not all time, Aurelius Augustine. Augustine. Uh, wow, there's people who pronounce that differently. I'm going to go with Augustine. I said it weirdly a moment ago. Uh, but suffice it to say, Pelagius was a, a monk from Britain who was alive at the same time of Augustine. Augustine, of course, is one of the most famous uh, Christian theologians throughout all of church history. Uh, he, uh, you know, was sort of the, the theological forefather of the reformation, obviously apart from like Jesus and Paul who reformed people would argue that our theology comes right from the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and the words of the whole Bible. Uh, but if you want to find an extra biblical, uh, theologian who was probably, or should probably be considered the forefather of Reformed theology, that person would be St. Augustine. Uh, so this guy, Pelagius, lived at the same time as Augustine, and uh, a controversy arose between Pelagius and Augustine 
when uh, Pelagius heard a prayer that uh, that Augustine prayed and published, you know, people Augustine would write and a lot of people would read his works and and use them for their own theological enrichment. And so uh, even in his own life, Augustine was, uh, you know, after his conversion, uh, he was a respected leader, as it says in uh, here. You can see on screen if you're watching, uh, Augustine was the bishop of Hippo, North Africa. So bishop is essentially um, a church leader. And people squabble with whether the the category of bishop or the position of bishop is actually a biblical position. But whether or not it is, uh, Augustine functioned as one. And essentially what a bishop was, was he was a leader of of a, uh, you know, he helped to oversee many churches in a region. So, you know, there would be local pastors at all these individual churches and they would look to Augustine for leadership, for guidance. Um, and so he, he functioned as sort of a pastor of pastors. Uh, and so Augustine, even in his own lifetime, was a influential person. Um, and, and a lot of people look to him for leadership. And so, um, in one of his, uh, prayers that he prayed and that other people kind of picked up from him, uh, Augustine prayed this prayer where he, he said, Oh God, command what you wouldst and grant what thou dost command. So, so in this, this prayer that Pelagian prays, he, he, he tells God, God, I want you command whatever you desire of me. I am your servant. I am completely at your, uh, you know, I, I serve at your pleasure. Tell me whatever you want me to do. That is essentially what the, the prayer is. And, but then there's this, this second half. And, and really, it's the second part of the prayer that, that angers Pelagius, because in the, in the second half of the prayer, he says, and grant what thou dost command. And so I'm going to read a, another selection for you from, from Sproul's article uh, that, that explains kind of why Pelagius had such a problem with this prayer. So uh, Sproul writes, it's the second part of the prayer that Pelagius abhorred when Augustine said, and grant what thou dost command. He said, what are you talking about? If God is just, if God is righteous and God is holy and God commands of the creature to do something, certainly that creature must have the power within himself, the moral ability within himself to perform it or God would never require it in the first place. So this is uh, Pelagius's response, because what is Augustine essentially saying? Augustine is, is recognizing, look, there are things that God is commanding me to do that of my own power, I am simply incapable of doing. And so the prayer is, God, please grant me the, the ability, please give me the grace to allow me to do those things that you are calling me to do. And Pelagius's response is essentially, look, you can already do anything that God asks you to do because it would be unjust for God to ask you to do something that you can't do. Now, we've we've sort of dealt with this from from different angles. We understand, I think I and, you know, 
obviously Pelagius would disagree with us, but but we understand that there are certain things God commands people to do that that in and of themselves people just can't do. You know, Jesus himself says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we understand none of us do that. None of us can do that. That is not something that is within our capability because uh, even in our uh, regenerated state, we still have the sinful flesh that distracts us. We have the sinful flesh that is um, so attached to the world that, that these temptations overpower us sometimes. And so we won't be perfect as we're commanded to be. But it does not make God unjust to command it. And so Pelagius, uh, he, he in sort of this, this, the ensuing debate that comes up regarding this prayer and Pelagius, he responds to Augustine in this prayer and Pelagius begins to articulate his theological viewpoints and his, uh, really what, what Pelagianism comes down to is it is a doctrine of anthropology, meaning it is a doctrine about man and the the nature of mankind and, and what we are or are not capable of, who we are before God, what we what we can and cannot do. Um, and so I'm going to read you a quote from page four of the article where uh, Sproul really helpfully sort of encapsulates what Pelagian's positions were. And I'll show you a few quotes from Pelagius himself later on that I think, uh, you know, substantiate this claim that Sproul is about to make. Uh, But in the article, uh, this is down on page four of the PDF that I made of the article so that I could sort of show show it to you on my screen. Um, Sproul says this, Pelagius said there is no such thing as original sin. Adam's sin affected Adam and only Adam. There is no transmission or transfer of guilt or fallenness or corruption to the progeny of Adam and Eve. Everyone is born in the same state of innocence in which Adam was created. And he said, for a person to live a life of obedience to God, a life of moral perfection is possible without any help from Jesus or without any help from the grace of God. Pelagius said that grace, and here's the key distinction, facilitates righteousness. What does facilitate mean? So Sproul here lays out for us pretty pretty clearly some of the, the key aspects of Pelagius's thought. So the first thing that Sproul mentions is that Pelagius uh, denied the doctrine of original sin. Now, uh, Christians, as uh, you know, going all the way back to the first century, uh, have have recognized this doctrine of original sin. And the primary place I'm not going to go there now, but but the primary place that I think we would point to in order to substantiate this doctrine of original sin is Romans chapter five. Which, which, uh, in which the apostle Paul he he uh, he draws a distinction or a contrast between Adam and Jesus, and he says, "For as in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive." And so there's this there's this reality about Adam that that Paul points to, which is that in Adam all who are in Adam are 
dead. Even though we have physical life, we are spiritually dead. This is um, the the key text that we would point to in order to, to substantiate the doctrine of original sin, which uh, essentially the, the, the doctrine is that because of this sinful nature that we have inherited from our forefather, Adam, we are dead and in sin, uh, which we can also point to Ephesians. Uh, chapter two verses like one to four, I think would be another spot where you could look. And what you'll find is there's this reality that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses and our will is, is not for godliness or holiness or righteousness, but instead we desire, uh, we, we love and long for, uh, sinful things that are against the will of God. But Pelagius denied that. He he said uh, that we are all born in a sort of neutral state of innocence. So uh, going on, uh, yeah, Sproul says that uh, there is, again, pointing to or um, describing the beliefs of Pelagius. Uh, he says that Pelagius believed there is no transmission or transfer of guilt or fallenness or corruption to the progeny of Adam and Eve. Everyone is born in the same state of innocence in which Adam was created. So the, the anthropology that Pelagius puts forward is that essentially every person, when they're born, they're born in the same state in which Adam and Eve were created, which was a state of ability a state of ability to obey or ability to disobey. Whereas what Christians have understood historically uh, is that because of this reality of original sin, we are all born as slaves to sin and we desire sin. And so even though our will, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, but even though our will is technically free, you know, you, you always will choose that which you desire most. Our will is free. Our will is uh, corrupted. So, so our will, we are free to choose whatever we desire, but all we desire is sin. This is why I think in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the fact that uh, without faith, everything we do is sin. We, we are always constantly sinning that is the the doctrine of total depravity which essentially states that we are not always as evil as we might be but everything that we do is tainted by sin everything that does not come from faith as it talks about in Romans 14 is sin and, and so when we are without faith entirely of course everything we do is sinful because we are doing it, whether the action itself is sinful or because our motivations around the action are sinful. We cannot escape our sinfulness for even a moment of our life. That is the, the biblical reality as it is described uh, and as Christians have held to for millennia. And so Pelagius in the, the fifth century denies this and, and, uh, he 
instead posits an anthropology that has each human being as completely free and completely capable to either choose righteousness or to choose uh, unrighteousness. And, and for him, grace was not what then enables us uh, from death to life and makes it so that we will desire righteousness. Instead, Pelagius says that grace simply facilitates righteousness. And by facilitates, what what he means is, you know, grace is an added help to you in choosing righteousness, but even without grace, you can choose righteousness. So uh, it goes on, I think, in the next paragraph here, Sproul, Sproul points out the fact that Pelagius further stated that it is not only theoretically possible for some folks to live a perfect life without any assistance from divine grace, but there are, in fact, people who do it. So Pelagius believed that there were people who actually lived perfect lives, sinless lives, and that they did so not by the grace of God, but instead by their own you know, willpower, their own inherent goodness. And uh, as it goes on, Sproul keeps writing and, and he, he points back to Augustine and he says, Augustine said, no, 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 no. We are infected by sin nature to the very depths and core of our being so much so that no human being has the moral power to incline himself to cooperate with the grace of God. The human will, as a result of original sin, still has the power to choose but it is in bondage to its evil desires and inclinations. So that has been the historic understanding of the human will, and that is precisely what uh, Pelagius denied. And so that is sort of a brief introduction to uh, Pelagian thinking, uh, Pelagian anthropology. And so now I want to look at, I think I have... Um, kind of three, I think, hopefully relatively quick points that we will walk through that I think are um, helpful for us to understand. Uh, and, and they, you know, since this episode of the podcast is primarily just looking at the, the article, what I want to do is just kind of walk you through the general themes of the article by, by looking at a few quotes. And so we're going to go all the way back up to page one, and I'm going to look at uh, another uh, quote that I think helps to kind of set the stage for for where the article will be heading. So on page one, uh, Sproul writes this. When we look at the Reformation and we see the solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, sola gratia, Luther was convinced that the real issue of the Reformation was the issue of grace and that underlying the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, was the prior commitment to sola gratia, the concept of justification by grace alone. And so here we see this is discussing, so we've moved forward about a thousand years in church history from Augustine to Luther and the time of the Reformation, and what we what we see Sproul here describing is uh, Luther and and Luther's conviction that led to uh, the Reformation and and Luther's conviction 
was uh, surrounding and primarily about this this doctrine of sola gratia or grace alone the the concept that justification our righteousness before god is purely a gift of god it is a gracious gift that he gives us it is not in any way something that we merit and so this was luther's main problem with the roman catholic church was there uh, the the system that had been built up around uh this this theology of merit that we must in some sense in some way in a variety of ways merit the favor of god merit the acceptance of god but what luther found as he read through the book of romans uh what he found was this this very clear central biblical teaching that justification being made right with god is a gift that comes by god's grace alone and is not something that can be purchased it is not something that can be uh merited or earned and so this is uh the the kind of driving force behind luther as he initiates uh the reformation and so our first point you know if if you like points if you're a type a personality sort of person and you like a a clear uh you know layout point number one is a robust understanding of sola gratia or grace alone precludes a synergistic understanding of salvation so uh there might be uh, at least one term in there that you you may not be super familiar with and that might be the term synergism and so let me first talk about synergism a little bit and then we can discuss um why i think this this idea of synergism which is uh what pelagianism would fall into especially most people today who i would say uh hold to some form of pelagianism they are synergists and so let, let's discuss discuss synergism and then from there we can uh discuss kind of why i think the the doctrine of sola gratia rules out any form of synergism so synergism if we want to put it simply is is simply the belief that each person plays an instrumental role in their own salvation such that those who remain unsaved do so solely due to their own choice so what i what i mean by that is that uh in the synergistic system or in a synergistic system uh of, of theology their argument is that god you know has essentially done his part for all mankind so so all mankind is now uh genuinely capable of being saved and the only reason that anyone isn't saved is just their own choice it is their own rejection of god that is the cause of their uh their final damnation so that would be uh a synergistic system and and essentially what it uh denies is god's election we see throughout scripture you see it probably most clearly in ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 
where it says that we were chosen in him. So we being Christians were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so Christians who have understood that passage correctly throughout time have have made clear note that the only people who can turn to Christ are those who were uh, elected before the foundation of the world. And that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4, that that uh, we have been chosen, we Christians were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, Jesus himself talks about this in John chapter 6, where he, uh, I think it's verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so there's this, this reality that that may at first seem unfair i would argue that if you think about it for more than a few seconds you'll recognize that it's not only not unfair it is abundantly merciful and gracious but there is a reality contained in scripture which is simply this that not all may come to christ only those who are drawn by the father may come to christ and so at its foundational level, uh, there is a reality simply that it is not purely someone's, uh, own reasoning. You know, it, 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 people are not saved because of their sin and also because God has not elected them. God has not drawn them, but if God did draw them, they would be saved. This is simply the biblical reality. God has the right to choose those whom he would like to choose. And he has done so. He did so before the foundation of the world. And so um, there's a quote here that I think helps us to understand uh, synergism pretty well. And that's uh, down at the bottom of page two. This is from the article. Uh, so Sproul writes, the principle of sola fide, so that is faith alone. The principle of faith alone is not rightly understood until it is seen as anchored in the broader principle of sola gratia or grace alone. What is the source of faith? Is it the God-given means whereby the God-given justification is received? Or is it a condition of justification which is left to man to fulfill? Do you hear the difference? Let me put it to you in simple terms. I heard an evangelist recently say, if God takes a thousand steps to reach out to you for your redemption, still in the final analysis, you must take the decisive step to be saved. Consider the statement that has been made by America's most beloved and leading evangelical of the 20th century, Billy Graham, who says with great passion, God does 99% of it, but you still must do that last 1%. So that is a, a clear uh, description of synergism. Uh, I, Billy Graham, at the end of that quote there, he says it very clearly. Uh, God does 99% of it, but you still must do that last 1%. So that is synergism. Uh, monergism, as opposed to synergism, monergism says that God does 100%. Uh, 
So for everyone who is saved, it is because God has done 100% of the work. That is why I think on the cross, Jesus can say it is finished. It is done. The work has been accomplished. God is the alpha and the omega of our salvation. As Philippians chapter one, verse six, it says, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God begins the work. God ends the work. God carries out the entire work of salvation. That is monergism. Synergism is that there must be an interplay, a working of both God and man, where where God does the vast majority, God does 99%, but you still must do that last 1%. And I would argue that this is a, this idea of synergism is a thoroughly unbiblical understanding of salvation. And, and that doesn't mean that if somebody holds this understanding necessarily that they, they are unsaved. I think, uh, you know, Sproul, the author of this article, says that uh, there are plenty of Arminians who are saved because of a felicitous inconsistency, which is uh, what he means by that. Essentially, uh, it's a funny quote, but, but what he means is, is just that uh, there are lots of people who if you if you ask them what they believe about salvation, they would articulate some form of synergism. But then if you ask them why they were saved, they would wholeheartedly affirm that it was purely the grace of God. We're going to see an example of that a little bit later um, in the in the podcast and in the the article. But but mo- most Arminians, if you ask them, you know, uh, does does man have a role in salvation? They'd say, yes, of course. You know, man has to do that last 1%, as Billy Graham would say. But then if you ask them why they personally are saved, they would, without hesitating, tell you that it was the grace of God. That is, they were saved all by God's grace. And that's what Sproul would call a felicitous inconsistency. You know, they are they are going against their articulated theology because deep down, even if they won't say it out loud, what they know to be true is that they did nothing to to merit or to earn their salvation. Uh, but the the theology that they articulate does not actually line up with the the deep recognition that is central to the gospel, that that salvation is found in no one else but Christ alone which includes you, you salvation is not found in you. No part of your salvation is found in you. Uh, a famous quote I had heard originally that it was from Jonathan Edwards. But then when I was looking it up to, to verify that yesterday, I found that, uh, it may not actually have been from Jonathan Edwards and may have in fact been from, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was actually a close associate of Luther, if I remember correctly. Uh, but Philip Melanchthon, apparently said, uh, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And I feel like most Arminians feel that way deep down, or most synergists feel that way deep down. They recognize that about themselves. But when they're asked about the interplay of salvation and how it all works, if you ask them to just uh, give you sort of an abstract theology, they would say that, you know, we still have to do that 1%. So um, 
I have a couple different Bible passages I think that refute the idea of of synergism, and the first of them is Ephesians chapter two verses eight and nine. Uh, that passage says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." So there's this clarity that Paul gives to this this uh, interplay of, of salvation, which is that it is the gift of God. So you were saved by grace through faith. So there's these sort of two interplaying elements there, grace and faith, but that neither of those things, both of those things together, they are not your own doing, but they are a gift from God. They are not a result of your works so that what the result is the fact that no one can boast. You you cannot boast in your salvation because there is no part of your salvation for which you can take credit. If there was any part of your salvation for which you could take credit, then you could boast. But the fact that we cannot boast illustrates or or demonstrates, I should say, the fact that you didn't contribute anything to your salvation. There was nothing that you did that was a, a unique contribution that you made. As that quote from Philip Melanchthon said, we did, in a sense, make one contribution, but that contribution was the mere fact that we needed saving because of our sinfulness. So it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. There's another passage that I think really uh, drives this point home, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. And we'll see again in here this, this language of boasting. So uh, the passage says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world. That is language of election. God is choosing people who are low and despised in the world going on in the passage, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him. So because of God, because of the father, you are in Christ Jesus. Let's pause right there. What is this passage saying? It's saying that we are only in Christ Jesus. That is language of union with Christ. That is language of salvation. We are in Christ. Why? Because of him, the father. The father is the uh, effector of our union with Christ. The father is the one who makes us one with Christ. That is exactly what Jesus talks about in John chapter six. The no one can come to the, to the, to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. First Corinthians one I think it's verse 29 or 30 says, uh, but going on speaking of Christ Jesus here, uh, he says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that 
as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So we get two mentions of boasting here. And what does it say? It says, first, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why? Because God chose. God is the one who is responsible for salvation. Therefore, you may not boast in God's presence because you did not do anything to effect your salvation. It was an effect that was had upon you by the actions of God. And therefore, at the end of the passage, it says, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Why do we boast in the Lord? Because the Lord is the one who effected our salvation. So we boast in him. But this is why synergism is is an unbiblical understanding of salvation, because there is nothing that we did There's nothing that we contributed for our salvation. I'll say it again. You cannot boast because there is no part of your salvation for which you can take credit. And that that runs contrary to synergism, but it is exactly what monergism teaches. Monergism, as I've I've stated, is the reality, the biblical uh, the biblical picture that God alone carries out our salvation. And so there's this really helpful uh, quote from a little bit later in the article um, where where we see this kind of, uh, this is a conversation between Sproul and another gentleman. So I'm going to read this passage to you because I think it's, um, Sproul really helps to kind of expose this guy's synergism in this conversation that he has. And, uh, it is it it's very telling about how synergists understand their salvation so uh it's on the ninth page of the article as i have it i don't know where it will be on your version of the article i'm sorry but uh sproul writes this i had a discussion with some folks in grand rapid michigan recently i was speaking on sola gratia and one fellow was upset He said, are you trying to tell me that in the final analysis, it's God who either does or doesn't sovereignly regenerate a heart? And I said, yes. And he was very upset about that. I said, let me ask you this. Are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, do you have any friends who aren't Christians? He said, well, of course. I said, why are you a Christian and your friends aren't? Is it because you're more righteous than they are? He wasn't stupid. He wasn't going to say, of course, it's because I'm more righteous. I did the right thing and my friends didn't. He knew where I was going with that question. And he said, oh, uh, no, no, no. I said, tell me why. Is it because you are smarter than your friend? And he said, no. But he would not agree that the final decisive issue was the grace of God. He wouldn't come to that. And after we discussed this for 15 minutes, he said, okay, I'll admit it. I'm a Christian because I did the right thing. I made the right response and my friends didn't. So I think here that this conversation that Sproul had with this gentleman that he recounts to us in this article really illustrates the, the difference between somebody who holds to synergistic theology and somebody who holds to monergistic theology and as 
this is all related because, sorry, excuse me. This is all related because Pelagian theology is thoroughly synergistic that God has, has done a certain amount of the work, but then mankind must do the remaining, uh, portion. And if we do not, then that is why we're not saved according to Pelagius. And that is precisely what this this gentleman in Grand Rapids articulates. He says, okay, I'll say it. I'm a Christian because I did the right thing. I made the right response and my friend didn't. This runs exactly counter to the both of the passages we just read that that tell us there there is you may not boast in anything. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord, because the Lord is the one who saved you, not you. You you did not contribute to your salvation. And what I think is is funny, you know, uh, I think our Arminian brothers in the faith, you know, would would really recognize the problem of synergism. If you look at, you know, like a, the Roman Catholics or the the uh, like Judaism, um, you know, they would say, wow, yeah, of course, like, you know, in the case of, uh, of Judaism, where, you know, or at least the Judaizers of the New Testament, they argued uh, that Christians still needed to uh, get circumcised, that they needed to follow the dietary laws, that they needed to keep the, the Sabbath, you know, the Jewish Sabbath and the festivals. And so there was all this argument that essentially, like, yes, the grace of God is a good and we need it, but also we need to do all of these certain things, these uh, ritual acts in order to to have salvation. That was uh, what the Judaizers argued. And an Arminian would point at that and say, yeah, of course, that's you know, that is not right. That is grace plus works. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Um but I think for for Arminians, rather, you know, I would affirm that for them, it's not truly grace plus works, but it certainly is grace plus wisdom that 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 they are saved primarily. You know, they are saved as opposed to their unbelieving neighbor, primarily because they are wiser than their unbelieving neighbor, because Arminian theology or synergistic theology would teach that God has made all people. He, he has equally given grace to all people and all people have the equal capability to turn. And so then the only reason why one person would turn to Christ and another person would reject Christ is because our, the, the, the saved person is wiser. So it's the grace of God plus their own private wisdom. And, and while that might seem better than, you know, a clearly grace plus works sort of system like Judaism. It is, it is not better. It, it is not really any different fundamentally because it is still a system that relies on a contribution from the, the, you know, the individual person rather than a system that recognizes the utter graciousness of salvation in which we are saved by nothing that we did and wholly by what God has done. So that is uh, point one for, for the episode, which is that a robust understanding of sola gratia, the grace of God alone, precludes or disallows or rules out 
a synergistic understanding of salvation. If you understand the grace of God as it is taught in Scripture, you will not have a synergistic uh, theory of salvation. Point number two. This one, I think, will be a bit shorter. Um, Point number two is that Pelagianism is a rejection of biblical anthropology. So anthropology is a topic that has come up a lot on the podcast, but I like to define it whenever uh, it comes up, just in case this is someone's first episode or they just don't remember from last time. Uh, But anthropology is essentially the, the study of man. And so the Bible has a very clear teaching on the nature of mankind. Uh, both, you know, we, we get this description of mankind before the fall. Uh, and a lot of that description actually is in the Bible later than the fall, but reflects on Adam and Eve. And then there is mankind after the fall. And, and scripture gives us uh, a clear understanding of mankind. And that is biblical anthropology. It is an understanding drawn from scripture of the nature of man. And my argument is that Pelagianism rejects the biblical anthropology that we find on the pages of scripture. And so I have a quote uh, from Pelagius himself. This is from a book called Pelagius Life and Letters, which is, I I believe, translated by B.R. Rees. Uh, So this is writings from the pen of Pelagius and Pelagius apparently on page 43 says, yet we do not defend the good nature to such an extent that we claim that it cannot do evil. So in this passage, uh, Pelagius has been discussing the idea that, that mankind has a good nature that we are by nature good but he he kind of gives the disclaimer. He's saying, look, we don't defend the good of nature to such an extent that we claim it cannot do evil going on. He says, since we undoubtedly declare that it is also capable of good and evil, we merely try to protect it from an unjust charge so that we may not seem to be forced to do evil through a fault of our own nature. When in fact, we do neither good nor evil without the exercise of our will and always have the freedom to do one of the two, being always able to do either. So Pelagius here, he is directly contradicting the the assertions of Augustine directly. You know, he's he's speaking and he's debating with Augustine. But then obviously I would say he's also directly contradicting scripture itself. But what he's he's pointing to is he's saying, look, we are not forced to do evil by our sinful nature. We are not, uh, to use Jesus terminology, we are not slaves of sin, but instead we are uh, completely free to do either good or evil. He says being always able to do either. So to simplify it, Pelagius claim his anthropology, his doctrine of man is that all mankind is endowed with the completely free and unrestricted ability to do either good or evil. There's nothing in Pelagius's view that that restricts you 
from from choosing what is good or doing what is evil. And this he is not here speaking exclusively about Christians, but he is speaking about all mankind. He's saying everybody, even those who are unsaved, those who do not have the Holy Spirit, those who have not been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, even they can do either good or evil. Whereas what we see again, and I think it's uh, Romans chapter 14, I think it's might be Hebrews. I can't remember where in Hebrews it is, but both of these uh, books have have passages that talk about the fact that uh, apart from faith, you cannot do anything that is good. Apart from faith, everything that we do is sin. So Pelagius here is directly contradicting that. And so uh, we have a quote here from the article. It's on the ninth page um, where this this topic of the will is addressed by uh, by Sproul. So Sproul uh, responding to sort of this this uh, Pelagian uh, tendency to say that our will is completely free. Uh, Sproul will here describe the the Christian doctrine regarding the human will. And I talked about this a few moments ago, but here is a a really helpful quote. So Sproul says this: uh, Do we have a will? Yes, of course we have a will. Calvin said, if you mean by a free will, a faculty of choosing by which you have the power within yourself to choose what you desire, then we all have a free will. If you mean by free will, the ability for fallen human beings to incline themselves and exercise that will to choose the things of God without the prior monergistic work of regeneration, then, said Calvin, free will is far too grandiose a term to apply to a human being. So here, Sproul, uh, citing John Calvin from the, the 16th century, Sproul uh, describes the, the Christian doctrine of, uh, of the will. And so Calvin affirms the idea of a free will if by that you mean the the faculty of choosing by which you have the power uh, to choose what you desire. So so Calvin affirms that that all of us have the power to choose what we desire. But he says, if by free will, you mean the ability for fallen human beings to incline themselves and exercise that will to choose the things of God without the prior monergistic work of regeneration, then Calvin says free will is is too grandiose a term. So essentially all he's saying is, look, uh, man's will like we, we can choose what we desire, but we as fallen human beings will never desire the things of God. So uh, in opposition to Pelagius, who says that we are always able to do either good or evil, we are always able to either uh, do what it, we are able to do the things of God or to reject the things of God, says Pelagius. Calvin says, no, in our fallen state, we always only do evil. And, and I think that is supported by the, the testimony of Scripture. And and this this uh, description of the human will, I think, can be supported from the, the, the Christian, the Calvinistic, the uh, the classically 
uh, reformed understanding of the human will, I think, can be supported from a variety of passages in Scripture. The first one we'll look at is John 8, 34. This is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So we are enslaved prior to our salvation. We are enslaved to sin before God regenerates us by his Holy Spirit graciously. We are slaves to sin. That is uh, about as grim of a term to describe the human will as I, as I could imagine. You are enslaved. You only do what sin desires. That's what it means to be a slave is that you are at the command. You are at the beck and call of another and Christians or well, sorry, everybody prior to uh, regeneration, prior to being reborn, everyone is at the beck and call of sin. This is the reality. This is what Jesus is teaches us. Uh, we see this again spelled out in Romans chapter three, verses nine to 11, where the apostle Paul writes and he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Hear that language again under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So remember, we, we saw Pelagius earlier. He he asserted uh, that that there are people who have lived perfect lives apart from the grace of God. That is uh, the Pelagian doctrine that that people are capable in and of themselves because they are inherently good. They are able to do what is good. Well, what does Romans chapter three verses nine to eleven say? They say no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That is all inclusive language there. There is not even one person who has done what is good, who, who seeks for God, who understands, who is righteous. No one fits those categories. So uh, if it's not becoming clear enough already, I will read to you one more passage, Ephesians chapter four, verses 18 and 19. And again, this is describing fallen humanity. The apostle Paul writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is, uh, I, I've said this multiple times, I think, when reading this passage, but if this passage were a Yelp review for humanity, humanity would have a failing grade. We are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. We are due to our hardness of heart. We have become callous and have given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy 
to practice every kind of impurity. That is the human will. We are greedy for impurity prior to our regeneration. Paul goes on in the very next verse. He says, but that is not how you learned Christ. So those who have learned Christ, those who understand, those who have been made to understand by the grace of God, they do not do those things. They do not behave in those ways. They do not. Uh, they are not darkened in their understanding anymore. Their hearts are no longer hard. But prior to the the enlightening, regenerating work of the Spirit by the meritorious work of Christ, every single one of us is greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is uh, as as different from Pelagianism. As I could imagine, you know, because what did we see from Pelagius's own pen earlier? He says he argues in one of his letters. He says that we are all able to choose either good or evil. Our will is completely free, according to Pelagius. But according to Ephesians chapter four, verse 19, we are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Our hearts are hard. We are darkened in our understanding and alienated from the life of God. So what we understand is that Pelagian anthropology is simply, it, it does not affirm the, the biblical data. So the bottom line is essentially this fallen man is enslaved to sin and unable to do anything that isn't tainted by sin. So to, to conclude this point, I want to look at uh, another quote. This one's from the sixth page here. So let me scroll up a little bit, uh, a little bit further. So uh, Dr. Sproul says this, At the time of the Reformation, all the Reformers agreed on one point the moral inability of fallen human beings to incline themselves to the things of God, that all people in order to be saved are totally dependent, not 99%, but 100% dependent upon the monergistic work of regeneration in order to come to faith. And that faith itself is a gift of God. So, Protestant theology, the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, all of the reformers, these, these, these men who, you know, together completely changed the way that uh, church was being done. They completely revolutionized, in a sense, our, our doctrinal understanding of the gospel, um, what they agreed on. They had many differences, but what they agreed upon was that this idea of the moral inability of fallen human beings to incline themselves to the things of God. What that means is all people, everybody, all fallen human beings, they, they do not desire the things of God and they cannot make themselves desire the things of God. And the only way that a fallen human being can be made to desire the things of God is by the working of the Holy Spirit within us. And so faith is a gift. It is not something that we choose. It's not something where we weigh all the options. And because we are wiser than our neighbor, we choose faith while they reject it. 
faith is a gift from God that he gives so that we will irresistibly, once we have this new uh, mind and new heart, we will see him and we will desire him. But it is only God who can do that work of changing our hearts. So that is uh, the end of point two, which I will restate again. Pelagianism is a rejection of biblical anthropology. It is a it is a misunderstanding of, of the doctrine of mankind as it is described in Scripture. So uh, point number three is, is this. The modern American church, so most churches today in America, I would argue, are largely Pelagian. And this goes back to uh, the thesis that I, that I gave at the very beginning. Uh, but the thesis is there is more Pelagianism in America than genuine Christianity. Now, that might sound alarming to you given the, you know, I think beat down that we just gave to Pelagianism. But my argument is that most people who call themselves Christians today hold to some form or another of Pelagian uh, theology, a Pelagian uh, theory of salvation. And so I, in order to sort of substantiate that, I've got another quote for you from the the article. Uh, so Dr. Sproul says this modern evangelicalism almost uniformly and universally teaches that in order for a person to be born again, he must first exercise faith. You must choose or you have to choose to be born again. Isn't that what you hear? In a George Barna poll, more than 70% of professing evangelical Christians in America express the belief that man is basically good, and more than 80% articulated the view that God helps those who help themselves. These positions, or let me say it negatively, neither of these positions is semi-Pelagian. They're both Pelagian. To say that we're basically good is the Pelagian view. So this is where the the title of the episode comes in. You, you can see it at the, or you could see it earlier at the bottom of the screen, but the, the episode title uh, for this one is Humanistic Christianity. Uh, I would argue that because of the, the advent and this isn't really new, but I guess this is a title that's been applied to it in the last few hundred years of humanism. I would argue that most Christians today have a, a sort of syncretism between Christianity and humanism. So if you're not familiar, the word syncretism is essentially the blending of different uh, ideologies or different religious uh, viewpoints. And so my assertion here is that in modern America, Christians have tried desperately to syncretize or to bring together the, the culture's doctrine of mankind with Christianity. 
And, and so, so the what we've come to is this spot where, in a George Barnapol, more than seventy percent of professing Christians, evangelical Christians, have said that man is basically good. This is what you hear in our culture. This is this is what you hear, you know, in, in the self-esteem workshops in in universities or in uh, public schools where where everything is about, you know, your self-esteem and that you truly are good deep down and what you have to do really your your duty as a human being is to simply let the the goodness that is deep within you manifest as fully as you can. And and when you do that, you know, you will be fulfilled and the world will just be abundantly blessed by your inherent goodness. If only you would just be true to yourself. That, I think, is the the doctrine of man that our culture puts forward. Uh, I think we're kind of on the tail end of it now because people are seeing its complete worthlessness. But I grew up during kind of the the self-esteem movement where, you know, they had to outlaw bullying. And if you if you bully at all, you get kicked out of school because what what would bullying do? Well, bullying might communicate to someone that they're not perfect. <laughs> you know, And I'm not a fan of bullying, but it's all based on this idea that that what we have to affirm in every one of these sweet precious children is that they are basically good and we've told them and I was one of these children who was told all growing up that you are good you know and you just need to let your goodness manifest and I think one of the most harmful things that's happened to our society uh, in recent years is that we told all of these children that they are basically good and they believed it and it has completely warped our understanding of salvation. Because why would somebody who is basically good need a gracious salvation? What do we need to be saved for? I'm good. Like, I, I, I don't need anything. I think it's so funny that, you know, oftentimes when somebody offers you something that you don't want, what do you say? At least for me, this has just kind of been ingrained in my vocabulary. Somebody offers me, you know, uh, a, a beverage that I do not desire. I say, what do I say? I say, I'm good. That is, that, that response is so, I think, uh, illustrative illustrative of our view of God. If we believe that we are basically good, why would we need a gift from him? Why would we need salvation from him? No, thanks God. I'm good. That I think is where we're at as a society. And so when more than 70% of, of evangelical Christians uh, express this belief that man is basically good, what we're doing is we're throwing the gospel out the window. And, and this is the, the Pelagian view, as, as Sproul says at the end of this quote that I just read to you, uh, to say that we're basically good is the Pelagian view. And that's what Pelagius was defending earlier in that quote that I read to you. He was saying, uh, you know, he was arguing that man is good. Now, man's not so good that he won't occasionally sin, Pelagius said. And, and that's what most American Christians would say as well. You know, yes, of course, we all make mistakes, but deep down, we're all good people. That is 
Pelagianism, and Pelagianism completely destroys any understanding that might lead somebody toward a recognition of their need for salvation. It, it teaches us instead that, you know, you are good, and as long as you, you, you do good, you, you do the, the good works, and you, you live out godliness, then you'll be saved. That is what, what Pelagius taught. I saw a quote from him um, last night. I should, have, I should have written it down, but the quote essentially said, and if you type in Pelagius quotes into Google, I think this is like the very first one that comes up, um, but the quote was paraphrasing, but the quote was essentially that uh, your doctrine or your belief in Christ is not what matters, but it is becoming like Christ that matters. That is the Pelagian view, where where Christ is not, uh, you know, the the atoning sacrifice, the willing atoning sacrifice who atones for our sin by his uh, body broken and his blood shed on the cross. But instead, Christ is purely a moral example. God is God is uh, his whole or Christ, I should say, is just simply about showing you how you ought to live. Oh, hold on. I did write the quote down. Let me read it to you verbatim. This is a famous quote from Pelagius. It's here in my notes. It says this. It is not what you believe that matters. It is how you respond with your heart and your actions. It's not believing in Christ that matters. It is becoming like him. That is a direct quote from Pelagius. Of course, it's translated, but that is a quote from Pelagius. And, and he makes very clear that, that uh, it is not it, belief is not what matters, but instead it is being like Christ. And, and is not, isn't that the motto of like the social justice Christians or the you know, the sort of anti-doctrinal seeker sensitive Christianity where, where they downplay theology so much and they what they raise up is being like Christ, you know. So for the social justice Christians, it's like, you know, you've got to work out justice in the society. And if you're not doing that, then you are not a Christian. And of course, it's their precise definition of justice, not not the Bible's definition of justice, but but their own modern bastardization of justice. But if you're not doing that, if you're not becoming like Christ, who who they argue was a socialist and a, uh, he, he was smashing the patriarchy and all of this. You know, that's their version of Christ. And for them, it's not about, you know, doctrines or what you believe, but it's just purely about being like that liberator Christ or for the the anti-doctrinal seeker sensitive, uh, you know, Christianity that I think we see all over the place uh, right now. You know, I've I have attended and even worked in uh, churches that I think kind of fit into this category where whether it's, you know, for the excuse that they want to avoid, uh, you know, division or, you know, if it's just kind of more honestly because they just don't care, uh, they really what they their their biggest desire. And this is why I call them seeker sensitive is to draw in a crowd. And, and so in order to draw in a crowd, they downplay doctrine, they downplay what you believe and they emphasize uh, almost exclusively this idea of, of being like Christ. 
to the point where you know the the gospel of God's grace, uh, monergistic grace is not preached and instead it is always sort of motivational speeches about you know here's how you ought to live here take a tip from the life of Jesus for what your life should be like that is that that describes a huge percentage of churches in our society today and and it is uh, based on this pelagian understanding of uh humanity where, where you're basically good and all you need is just a little more help and encouragement to, to let manifest the deep down goodness that God has planted inside of you. But that is so contrary to what the Bible actually says about you and about everyone else before we are saved. What the Bible actually says is that no one is good. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. All have turned away. That is what the Bible says about us, and that is why we need the monergistic, God-centered, God-driven, God-started, God-completed salvation. Only he can do it. We don't contribute to it, and therefore, because we do not contribute anything to it, we may not boast about it. That is what we need to preach. That is what you must believe. And if you believe something else, I call you to repent of it and to trust in what Christ has revealed through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Holy Bold Podcast. I am very grateful for you uh, tuning in. It is a pleasure uh, to get to do this. And I'm just grateful that there are still some people who are listening and, uh, you know, maybe share the episode if you think this would be useful for someone else. Uh, but again, I'm grateful for you and I hope that you have a great, uh, weekend. If you listen to this on Friday or whatever, whenever you listen to this, but thanks for tuning in. Farewell. (laughs) 